0: Wonder Things Studios proudly presents a special edition of the Roundtable Podcast. 20 Minutes with Madeline Ashby. Hello, literary alchemists. I'm Dave Robison.
1: And I'm Lauren Harris.
0: And you've tuned in to a special episode of the Roundtable Podcast, 20 Minutes with
1: 20 Minutes With is an opportunity to sit down with some amazing creators and explore their craft in our never-ending quest to improve our own.
0: Indeed, indeed. The never-ending quest to improve our craft, to craft fabulous podcasts, to share wisdom in the world uh, from a diverse uh, cross-section of demographic fabulosity, and, of course, to do podcasts with my podcast sister, Lauren Scribe Harris. Friends, in case you didn't know, uh, there was a bit of podcast gold that was lost lost to the dark demons of audio corruption and it featured my fabulous podcast sister Lauren Scribe Harris uh it's heartbreaking it's terrible and today we get to fix that ma'am your strength continues to be an inspiration to me I'm so glad you decided to come back and try this again
1: Uh, Well, I am always happy to be on, and uh, I'm only sad that the last one didn't get to see the light of day. It was Uh, a fabulous episode. It was.
0: You were brilliant. You were brilliant. There's no question. That's okay. We'll replicate brilliance today. Lauren, (laughs) let me sit back, relax. I know you've got some some warm, comfy tea going. Uh, uh, Mm -hmm. Let me introduce you to our guest host for this episode of 20 Minutes With. May I?
1: Yes, please.
0: Oh, very good. Well, get yourself comfy. Now, Lauren, as you know, we've had many guests on the show with some very intriguing advanced degrees. We got folklore, anthropology, astrophysics, and and more often than not with those more exotic academic pursuits, it, it tends to inform the core of their creative explorations. Well, friends, our guest host for this episode of 20 Minutes With has a master's degree in manga and anime and cyborg theory. Now I'm I'm yeah I'm just going to let that sit there for a minute let you all unpack that in your imaginations for a moment. In fact let me add to that. Among her career descriptions you'll find the title of futurist. Now how does that happen? Well, fortunately I'm here to tell you. So sit back and relax. Now as a child she cut her teeth on genre fiction. Literally, her, her mother's copy of Stephen King's Night Shift was her teething ring as an infant. There are little baby <laughs> teeth marks in the spine of this book. And apparently some of the ink or, or perhaps the, the spirit of the stories leached into her system through her gums. Uh, because as soon as she was old enough to walk and talk, she would wander around the house rehearsing scenes between people she made up complete with the full vocal performance and the funny voices. And once her performance met her exacting standards of perfection, she'd write it down and move on. Now, while most parents would likely view such behavior as justification for a childhood of lengthy therapy sessions, I'm guessing her parents were actually quite charmed by it. Her father had an extensive collection of Asimov, Herbert, and Heinlein, and as we've already learned, her mom was a huge Stephen King fan. In fact, our guest host was in the third grade when her father sat her down to watch Blade Runner. And though the intimacy of the violence was was frightening to our seven-year-old guest host, uh, she was utterly fascinated. In fact, sci-fi media of any kind was standard fare in their household. (laughs) And even the next-door neighbors uh, contributed to her cultural indoctrination, uh, ensuring she took in the recommended daily allowance of Babylon 5 and Farscape. And, And guys it wasn't just that she was entertained by it. She got it. She was the one who would explain the plots of X-Files episodes to the adults when the adults couldn't keep up. That's, that's <laughs> how she rolled. Exactly. So she was reading Stephen King, Ray Bradbury, and Margaret Mayhew in elementary school, and she wanted to live in the world of Brian Jacques's Red Wall. Uh, in junior high, she discovered Sebastian Japerso. And it was in the ninth grade that she wrote her first novel. Actually, it spread out over a little longer than that, but it started in the ninth grade. It started out as an assignment in AP history to write a story about whatever ancient civilization they were studying. And she, she wrote a novella about archaeologists and it caught the eye of the teacher and he challenged her to write a whole novel using the characters she had created. She would get an A for the year and be excused from regular homework provided she finished the story and then submitted it to publishing houses. And I can hear every RTP listener out there in the potosphere saying, where was this guy when I was in junior high? (laughs) Holy crap. And, And friends, it was during this exercise that she discovered that writing was her favorite thing to do in the world now in high school she discovered anime and manga she watched all the usual anime gateway drugs uh, evangelion ghost in the shell akira dozens more in college at seattle university while pursuing a degree in history and english it was haruki murakami and ursula le guin and william gibson while mainlining cowboy bebop and standalone complex and full metal alchemist Now, she graduated, and after four years of that, consumed in tandem with Aeschylus, Blake, and Fitzgerald. As you might imagine, she was a little confused (laughs) and conflicted regarding what kind of writer she was going to be. But it all became clear when she went to a reading by Ursula K. Le Guin, who was reading from her nonfiction work, The Wave in the Mind. The exercise of imagination... Le Guin writes, is dangerous to those who profit from the way things are because it has the power to show that the way things are is not permanent, not universal, and not necessary. And she actually got to meet Le Guin that night. And the author's kindness and wisdom are indelibly imprinted on our guest host's memories. Now, around this time, she migrated to Toronto, a long and arduous process reminiscent of Terry Gilliam's movie Brazil. And she gave a paper on standalone complex at a conference held at York University on animation, comics, and gaming. Now, a friend recommended applying to the university's interdisciplinary studies program. She did. She got in and focused on anime, cyborg theory, and fan studies. And things were going great. (laughs) Things were going awesome until a friend and author, Carl Schrader, got in her face and told her that traditional academia would be the death of her. He recommended she get a foresighting degree so she could go into consulting. And she was still in the process of figuring out her next move, so she applied to the Strategic Foresight and Innovation Program at OCAD University, and she became a futurist. But... And guys, she pointed out something in one of her interviews that totally blew my mind. You would think that being a futurist would inform her science fiction writing. But if you look at the path that led to her being a futurist, it's the exact other way around. Her sci-fi writing informs her futurism. Chew on that for a while. That's kind of wild. Now, and speaking of sci fi writing, don't chew too long because let's talk about the 2009 Worldcon in Montreal. Why would we want to do that, Dave? Well, thank you for asking. Because that is where (laughs) she was introduced to the editors of the mighty Angry Robot books by Yetzi DeVries. Now, Yetzi had edited the Shine anthology and our guest host, story Ishin was featured as the closing story. And he asked what she was working on. She answered, a novel about the dynastic feuds between self-replicating cannibalistic cybernetic beings with a built-in kink for humans. So, so it was a story about angry robots. <laughs> and so pitching a story about angry robots to angry robot books, really, no-brainer. <laughs> Had to happen. Uh, and thus, in July 2012, VN, the first machine dynasty, hit the shelves. It was followed in 2013 with I.D., the second machine dynasty, picking up the narrative of one of the supporting characters in the first book, Now, there's a third book in the works, tentatively titled Rev, but before you think she's all about the godless killing machines, her next book coming out is Company Town, due out in May 2016, and it's a profound departure. It's about sex work and serial murder and the singularity. Now, with her essays and criticism being showcased on Boing Boing, io9, Tor.com, and more, and her fiction appearing in Tesseracts, Imaginarium, and Escape Pod, dear friends, I think there can be no doubt that she is indeed dangerous to those who profit from the way things are. Friends, she is so short that once, when she was standing in a cashier line, a little girl pointed at her and said, Mommy, why is she so little? She listens to Nine Inch Nails while writing the Machine Dynasty series. Apparently, The Fragile always works when she's stuck. If stranded on a desert island with only one book, it would be Kafka on the Shore by Haruki Murakami. And if she could, she would erase tarantulas from existence. (laughs) (laughs) Dear friends. Me too. (laughs) Please welcome to the big chair here at the Roundtable Virtual Studios, Madeline Ashby. Madeline, uh, a Toronto-based author, creating so much fabulosity, not only in fiction, but also just in the world at large. I am so grateful that you were able to make the time uh, to join us and share some of your wisdom, ma'am. Thank you.
2: Well, thank you for having me. That's, Absolutely, that's, a, that's an amazing introduction. Oh, well. I feel really good about myself.
0: Right <laughs> <laughs> I could I could market that, couldn't I? This <laughs> would be, be like a self promotional thing. You
2: like a motivational introducer? <laughs> there
0: you go, or a herald. i I've been thinking about herald actually. actually right, <laughs> yes, that actually
2: that's the actual word.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, look, Madeline, I want to get into this, but before we actually set the clock and start talking about story and everything. There's, I want to get a little geeky with you um, <laughs> because I was, of course, obviously stalked you extensively on the internet and found some I, fabulous I, I, stuff. <laughs> and there was an interview you did with Ed Fortune for Starburst and you said, I don't believe in the singularity. Now, what blasphemy is this? How can you not believe in the singularity?
2: I, I don't think that there's any one particular event. Like, I, I don't think that you would notice it as one particular event. Okay. That's the I, I think like uh Annalie Newitz wrote a thing for IO9 once about how there have already been many singularities that we didn't think of as being such at the time, but obviously were. And she credits it they have not they have nothing to do with processing power but but are also technological innovations that change the landscape of humanity. So the invention of penicillin. For example, oh, okay. change the entire game in terms of life expectancy, productivity, the ability of families to survive. You know, the ability to ha- like people being able to plan their families. And she also credits um, uh, the invention of uh, like the birth control pill with with a similar innovation, where suddenly like the the forces that had chained us to our bodies in certain ways. Could be removed in a way that our ancestors couldn't have possibly imagined, in a reliable, safe, legal way that that suddenly allowed us to change our destiny uh, from biology to um, to our own to, to agency. Yeah, culture, and so, and
0: civilization. Yeah,
2: yeah. And so I think like when we attribute that kind of game-changing power to processing power, yes, that's true, but it's important to recognize that similar innovations have happened in the past. They just happened a little bit further apart, but you don't necessarily, you aren't necessarily aware of it changing your life as it's occurring. So the idea where, whereas the thing that I don't, the thing about this, like, the singularity is that it uh, sounds awfully close to the rapture, which is why Charlie Strauss and <laughs> Cory Doctorow called it the rapture of the nerds, right? And and stuff. So, And they have a novella called The Rapture of the Nerds and, um, that they worked on together. And, uh, and it's about, in a lot of ways, it's about how banal the singularity ends up being. Um, because no one, unlike the rapture, which announces itself, you know, with, you know, dragons and trumpets and, and then there's <laughs> some horsemen and it's like everyone makes abundantly clear to you that this this is it guys <laughs> it's happening um,
0: right now it's
2: happening like you know it, short of getting an email everyone seems to understand what's going on <laughs> and um, I think if we have the singularity it'll look more like the enlightenment mm. or the Victorian era more like an era than a than a single event
0: so really the concept of singularity is is a matter of scope. Uh, uh, if, you, yeah. if you step back far enough and look at the span of thousands of years, you could actually identify all of the things you just listed as the singularity for that age. So we're living the singularity, basically, right yeah. now.
2: Yeah, I think that... Um the I mean, there's a there's definitely like the the question of do you believe that machines will ever possess the intelligence to build themselves? And yeah, absolutely, that'll sure. absolutely that's gonna occur. Um, whether or not it will be the this like again this sort of rapture experience where suddenly we stop mattering. Or we or we cease to have control over those machines. One, we don't have a lot of control over them now. Like if, if there's a <laughs> if there's a if there's a scale error, like uh, United Airlines recently, like over the summer, experienced a, a total loss of functionality because there was a um, an error in how their systems estimated the weight of luggage. Oh damn! Yeah. So if you don't know the weight of the luggage, then you don't actually know if the plane can take off because you don't know <laughs> how much fuel you need
1: you don't know how much fuel
2: you need so they were grounded for a day because literally the machine sort of forgot to carry the two um and they didn't know how to fly without that information because the the process had been so automated that you could not just add on do like some two-column bookkeeping um (laughs) and and figure out how much the how much the um, the luggage weighed and how much fuel was in the tank wow. and and whether or not you could fly at X distance. So because And that's just we, one example. That's, just- that's one example. It's like <laughs> oh, those same systems, like similar systems to that also, you know, run the traffic lights. <sighs> they also run um, You know, the stock market, banking, banking, um, things like that. So it's sort of like we kind of don't have the degree of control that we think that we have already. (laughs) Um, And also we seem not to want it. You know, yeah. I mean, like we seem—it's not like, oh, well, we've lost control and we can't do. It. It's like, well, did we want it? Did anybody really want to do the double entry bookkeeping there? Because it seems like we didn't. <laughs> yeah, and and it also seems like we we really love not paying humans to do that job because then we have to give them benefits. So <laughs> it's sort of <laughs> <laughs>
0: that is—it's it's, money driven.
2: It's a money driven yeah. process. It's, it's a profit driven driven process, and yeah. so you know, I kind of don't buy into the idea of yeah the long story short is that i sort of don't buy into the idea of of this one event where we suddenly realize that you know that computers have this amazing <laughs> processing power and then and and they and they don't care about us it's true that they don't that they already don't care about us and it's true that we already like have poor control over some of those systems and at this point if you if you really believe in a Skynet scenario, then that would be an excellent reason to keep not investing in digital infrastructure because it'll basically uh, be the only thing that saves you.
0: Madeline, I think I think a, a significant percentage of RTP listeners right now just became conspiracy theorists. <laughs> <laughs> so, well done, ma'am. Awesome. I, I can't I can't wait to see the blogs that emerge from that scenario. That's awesome. Thank you for that. And I, I just I just wanted to explore that a little bit because this really is one of your many wheelhouses and and I couldn't pass up an opportunity to to broach the subject with you. Thank you for that. But uh but let's 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 talk about your writing a bit. Let's let's I'm I'm keen to start our 20 minutes with Madeline Ashby. So I'm going to set the clock and I'm already planning on ignoring it. Uh, Lauren you down with ignoring the clock. I'm down with it. Okay, awesome. Yeah, I think that's going to happen. So let's get into this. Um, Madeline, uh, uh, you did an interview with uh, Carter Bowles of Trending Sideways back in July of 2012. uh, And you had mentioned that uh, uh, you you have a lack of fantasy ideas. You said that it's just not the genre from which uh, I derive my life's metaphors. I have no deep pull to rewrite that canon toward my own ends. And... That statement right there kind of made my brain freeze for a moment because it kind of speaks to the underlying core of why writers write. And, and it explores the motivation of a person to subject themselves to the torment uh, uh, that is writing even a short story. So yes. I was wondering if you would be willing to unpack that a little bit. Is Do you feel that that's one of the driving motivations for writers to literally rewrite the Canon to align to our perceptions.
2: I think so. I mean, I think like the, I think that you can see that in miniature, um, in fan fiction, Mm. right. Where you, where you rewrite sort of, you do, you do a fix it story or you, you sort of break the story to get it to, to heal stronger than it was before. So you see like sort of the, like changing the, an established commercial canon to sort of suit your own read on that story and sort of bend around that, um, or make explicit what was implicit in, in the story before. Right. So that's like the story of all of, of most slash slash fiction, right. You're doing all the things that American television producers can't do on broadcast. (laughs) Um, that's, it's just like, Imagine if we had a story without standards and practices. Oh, okay. So um, (laughs) um, that's like, that's it. And a demographic Um, of one,
0: uh, me. yeah, Yeah, exactly.
2: But you also, I think that same impulse is there with broader genres and broader, broader stories, right? I mean, I don't think we would keep on seeing biblical epics if that weren't the case. Like, everybody wants to tell their version of those same four gospels all over, or or the Torah over and over and over again, because everybody needs their, you know, the people who believe in that have a, a need to. Refashion that story to their own ends and find themselves in there to find them, find a place for themselves. Juno Diaz said that, that you know, I think it's Juno Diaz uh, said that, you know, like if you cannot find, uh, I'm paraphrasing here, but if, if you cannot find an example of yourself in art, it's like being a monster who can't see themselves in a mirror, it's oh, wow. like being a vampire. Um, because wow. there's no reflection back to yourself Right. Holy and, crap. And, yeah. and, 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 and listeners can look that up because he actually, it's a whole paragraph. It's a, it's a really finely wrought argument, but I'm, and I'm probably butchering it here, but that's, that's sort of what it boils down to is that if you never see yourself represented, it's because it, it leads you to feel that you must be monstrous. And so I think that's part of why, you know, you want to find yourself. That's sometimes why in genre, we have to like sort of work against the grain a little bit.
0: We'll be back with more of our conversation with Madeline Ashby after this brief promotional break. Ever notice that it gets dark just before it's time for bed? That's pretty
2: convenient, isn't it? I can think of a dozen uses for Vegemite. Not a single one involves actual consumption. Hundreds, sometimes thousands, of random and quirky thoughts flip through our little brains every day.
1: Thinking about founding the International Order of Dainty Silk Underwear Inspectors. Strictly for science, of course. Sometimes we allow those thoughts to surface long enough to be recognized as hidden gems. Don't look now, but I'm naked! Under my clothes.
2: Scott E. Pond has been collecting his random thoughts and observations for the last six years. Mental Graffiti contains the best of the best, hand selected for you for this volume.
1: Whoever let loose ninja goats into my dream last night, screw you! You ruined a perfectly good top secret mission I was on with Celine Dion.
2: Mental Graffiti, available on Amazon in both ebook and print on January 29th, 2016. Sometimes you need to take a can of spray paint to your brain. Other times, your brain is the spray paint.
0: Now, let's get back to the conversation with Madeline Ashby.
2: It was easy for me to find myself in in fantasy literature. There's a ton of you know. There's a very there's a very famous uh, clever uh, curly haired uh, witch. <laughs> and uh, who whose study habits? mimicked my own in a lot of ways and her, and her know-it-all qualities re- like re- resembled my own so like there wasn't you know it's a lot easier I think for me to find myself in there it's a lot harder for me to find myself in in science fiction which was why I was more drawn to it
0: interesting well and and your invocation of, of you know faith-based rewritings or, or fan fiction as it were uh, mm. uh, is 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 very germane I think to the concept of genre fiction because for right. for geeks and nerds it is Our faith. It is that which by which we define ourselves more often than not in the world. And then that also speaks very highly to what we're what we're seeing now in genre fiction with the drive towards more diversity for gender diversity, racial, cultural diversity within the fiction. That's awesome
2: absolutely yeah no I think that I think that that's what people are, are really reaching for and yearning for and we're able to have that conversation and and, uh, and stuff which is great
0: that is cool Lauren I'm going to turn the mic over to you because I know you've got questions for, for Madeline
2: uh, I'm, I'm just kind of sitting here in awe to be honest <laughs> <Aww>. <laughs> like uh-huh.
1: I have I, I I understood maybe every fifth word of the singularity conversation <laughs> I'm not a science person at all we broke um, Lauren
0: Lauren's, we, we broke we Lauren did.
1: Oh. we did I guess I'm interested a little bit in in your studies into the fan uh, your your fan studies or fandom oh, studies yeah. Yeah. um cuz I mean I'm a fangirl as well I got into anime and manga and awesome. lived abroad in Japan and oh, taught cool. English there for 3 <laughs> years um and uh you know have been very involved in cosplay and the and the just the fandom convention circuit in general um so I'm curious about uh, sort of what aspect of fandom you studied primarily, or whether, or what exactly drew you into that as a as an area of study.
0: And let me, I, let, me I, let me tack on to that too. And also, how did it affect your approach to your fiction as you started dabbling in that very field that you were studying?
2: Um, hmm. um, well, I started, I guess, like the 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 impetus to get into fan studies was kind of twofold like it started in high school I got into anime thanks to a friend of mine I was a TA for a class in American Sign Language and uh, my co-TA the girl who sat next to me um, was a giant Sailor Moon fan she was Uh. way into Sailor Moon and she had like the original Sailor Moon coloring books and um, a lot of original Sailor Moon stuff and she carried a binder of fanfic with her and I didn't understand, like, like why this was so important to her. And so she was really, really invested in um, Sailor Uranus and Sailor Neptune's relationship. And she mm-hmm. told me, you know, hey, it's... Uh, you know, you'll find all this stuff, but you can only find it in Japan because um, the American reversioners um, at at Deke um, have changed it so that they're cousins. But in on the show, when you see it in Japanese, they are dating and they live together, and then they raise a child together. And I was like, really? And she's like, I'll prove it to you. And she sent me home with fan sub tapes because long before there were, you know, uh, long before there there oh, yeah. was printing they're literally VHS tapes that got copied around which is um, you know if you watch old MST3K episodes there's like a there's a little banner at the bottom that says keep circulating the tapes um, uh, yeah. and, uh, and, stuff. and it was very much that same kind of ethic among fans who were tra- who were not only translating but then also subtitling their own stuff on on VHS videotape and so uh, she shared these tapes with me and I just like fell in love like I, I totally Love. Yeah, and those tapes I, were
1: literally how I watched, like, all of Cardcaptor Sakura and Gundam Wing. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> All of it. Yep.
2: Mm-hmm. And so uh, I f- fell in love and got into sort of fan culture with her. And later I realized that, like, the reason that she was so invested in that was that it was literally the only queer re- relationship on television that mm-hmm. she could mm. And it was instrumental in her sort of coming out and and stuff. And I thought, like, hey, if this, like, cartoon for 12-year-old girls in another country is the only place that people can find themselves, maybe it's really important. Yeah. And, yeah. And maybe maybe we should be looking into this. And, and it's true. Like, that's – I think anime is the place that I found myself. Like, certainly they, like – Television at the time was not making a lot of stories about girls like me. I guess, like, the closest example would have been like Willow Rosenberg, maybe, but like, yeah,
1: <laughs> I was gonna say because even Buffy was a cheerleader, yeah, and, no, like, and, and a cute blonde, and yeah,
2: no, and yeah, like, so and it, it, yeah, and and even then, like, I still couldn't watch it because we didn't have cable, so like, it was sort of like I was really yeah. locked into this, and so um, I got into it from there, and then I took a course in um comic books and and manga while I was in university and one of the thinkers that we studied in that course was Henry Jenkins so we started reading like a lot of Henry Jenkins's work and I just really got into it because it was like oh right here's there's this guy who's talking about how the internet relates to itself and that you know let's dig into this and so that's I was really inspired to go find out everything that I possibly could, and and, um,
0: and what did start- you find when you when you launched that that degree? What what did you come in, come to any conclusions regarding fandom in the context of of literature?
2: What I found was that um, it's it's really important to create uh, safe spaces, and I think that there's as as we have sort of lost um, sort of social third spaces in in architecture, and as as we have. Indoors to do our communi- communications, um, we uh, it's the internet and fan communities in particular on the internet have become the place for women to meet each other in safety. Hmm. Um, oh yeah, and, and to and to carry on like what are often sometimes very intimate conversations. Like if you if you go like if you if you look at explicit fanfic in one way, it's actually a really safe way for. Older and younger women to talk to each other about sexuality. And mm-hmm. to talk about what good sex is and what good relationships are. Through and what a medium
0: good- that everybody can interconnect yeah. with and is already yeah. bought into. Nice.
2: Right. And through a story that everybody can share. Right. Um, and right. stuff. So rather than saying, like, well, when I met your dad, like. Uh, you know, which automatically has that squeak factor where you're like, I was, no, 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 stop talking. <laughs> I have to go over here now. I forgot that I had an entire garage to clean. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so you also get this this way of you know for women to sort of talk artistically and frankly and intimately about uh, about something that's so important, but in a really fun way where there's like sort of a, a Rawlsian veil of in, of ignorance where it's like you don't know mm-hmm. how old the person is that you're talking to, right. you don't know what race they are. You don't know where they're from necessarily. So you aren't sort of reef you aren't reframing your conversation with them based on existing bias.
0: Well and I would imagine it's not just women either, but, oh, but yeah. men exploring yeah. their own sexuality can do so through those those contexts as well. For
2: mm-hmm. sure, yeah. And I think there are a lot of men in those communities who don't admit that they're men. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Well and
1: there's there is a um a theory about fandom that um one of the reasons there's such a uh, a backlash against women in fandom is because women's fandom is more creative and men's fandom is more, um, acquisitional. So men yeah, tend to care a more about collecting the stuff and knowing the facts and yeah. having all of this trivia built up. And women tend to care more about things like creating costumes based on the characters they like or creating fiction or fan art and things like that. And not to say that men aren't represented in that and women aren't represented in the other, but there is a larger scale on both
2: sides. Well, yeah, I mean, like, and I think that, and I think that's largely to do with how marketers have sold the lifestyle of fandom to to people, right? Yeah. I mean, men are, pay, you know, women are paid seventy five cents on the dollar, so there's an existing wage gap at play. So already, women's money is worth less, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, so pitching products at women, unless you can attach the pink tax to it, is um, is the less pink profitable. Tax? Yeah, that's the that's how you pay more for women's razors than men's razors. Oh
0: my god!
2: Because, yeah, women's deodorant costs men than more than men's deodorant. They're both eighteen yeah. percent aluminum hydroxide, but they're you know. Um, mind, uh, mind blown. Carry on, yeah, please. No, go, go, check, go check it out the next time you're at the store. Go go compare wow. prices. So yeah, I think that um, because um, these are companies, these are often like huge multinational companies uh, that want to make. Money. They only pitch things to to men, and they pitch the things that that men have liked in the past. Which is to say, yeah. like figures, like certain branded items, and and so on and so forth. So it's like when the forces of capital don't address your needs,
1: you, you get have, hashtag Where's Ray?
2: Yeah, Where's Ray? You have to you have to address them yourself. In Toronto, I don't know if it's this weekend, but um, or next. But there's a Where's Ray um, DIY doll making workshop. Oh,
1: my God. See, yeah. I wish that was going to be in March because I'm going to be in Toronto in March.
2: <laughs> oh, awesome. Awesome. Uh,
1: Why does that not happen in March?
2: I want a <laughs> Ray doll. Well, see, they, maybe they'll run it again. You don't know. Um, so I think that when the forces of capital sort of don't address your needs, you end up making them – you you end up making do or, or closing the gap yourself with a DIY ethos, right? I mean, before we were talking about makers... Right. Like long before we were talking about makers, I think that there were these communities of women online who were trading costume tips and create, trading, you know, different media, but very similar sentiments of like, hey, you can just do this yourself. You can just mm-hmm. make this yourself. And whether it's a story or an artwork or a costume or a, or something else like that, you're going to make it yourself. And now we're seeing a slight change in that. Like Hot Topic has been like really, really smart about selling products to women that are branded with Geeky content, right? It's like the basically mm-hmm. short of Etsy. It's the only place online to buy anything like a geeky T-shirt that actually fits you. Yeah. um and this really geek has some, but yeah. geek has uh, some. Like yeah. now, yeah, we're seeing more of that that shift.
0: Well, and uh, this really kind of harkens back to that quote that you invoked in in the first segment of the of the podcast. Was if you don't see yourself reflected. You know, in this case, in in the product, in the craft, in the work, in the literature, uh, uh, then your natural instinct is to demonstre us, demonstrous, demonstrify <laughs> yourself, uh, yeah. and and insert yourself into that, and this, this yeah, that's no. cool.
2: So I think so. I mean, like, there's certainly like, because also like growing up, I had this sense that I was participating in all these things that like were not that were not for me.
1: And right. that I was for mm-hmm.
2: really liking them. That like, like, oh, I'm different. Then I'm, I'm not. I used to say that, like, I used to say a lot that I was not a bad girl, but I was bad at being a girl. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, for at
0: least by the context of what everybody was saying, a girl was
2: right at mm-hmm. the time. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. in and in a and in a little suburban town in Western Washington. So
0: right, right. You know. Well, let me let me ask you something. Not necessarily parallel, but certainly relevant and germane to to your your writing craft, Madeline. Um, and it, this is in reference to uh, your your sci fi fan letter uh, interview with Jessica Strider, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, she had asked you uh, what was the hardest scene for you to write in V N, and you had mentioned <laughs> that uh, you had rewrote the opening for V N many, many, many times. Uh, and eventually, as I recall, it was a, a movie that that uh, galvanized it for you and showed you how to make it work. So I assume that having wrestled with that beast of the opening scene, uh, uh, some some pearls of wisdom uh, uh, glommed into your cerebral cortex. Could could you could you share with our listeners some some ideas, tips, insights into the the importance of that opening scene and how to craft it?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that. Um the opening of Vn is interesting because it's the prologue is told from a character who is not in the rest of the book. I mean, he's alive, but he's not. Um, he's not the narrator of it. It's told from the perspective of uh, um, Jack Peterson, who's uh, Amy Amy Peterson's human father. She is a robot, and she, and but he and his robot wife have grown her. They've iterated her, and uh, and he's her dad. And he he thinks of her as his daughter. There's no question there. There's no like he loves her very much. And he narrates that opening. And in that opening, he watches his wife's mother, the, the previous iteration of his wife, uh, try to steal his daughter. And he watches his wife and her mother get into a knockdown, dragout fight at kindergarten graduation. And then he sees his little girl jump up on stage at kindergarten graduation and eat her grandmother alive. Oh my God. <laughs> um, and he is a human being who is not capable of any of these things. Like they're fighting like godless killing machines and he's a, a fully organic uh, guy who like cannot help anybody in that situation. He's not strong enough. And so it, you know, he watches this sort of hidden capability of, of his wife and child emerge. But he didn't understand that they were capable of this horrific violence, for one thing. And he also just sort of isn't as strong as they are and is sort of really comes up against his own weaknesses right there. There's a moment where like he's holding his little girl in his arms and, and she says, Dad, you have to go help mom. And he says, I can't. And that's when she leaves him and, and runs up on stage because he cannot.
0: And that really um, provides a portal for the reader then, going from a human yeah. perspective, a portal of, perspective, of perception, that right. then informs the rest of the story.
2: Right, right. And and I think that was really important to me that like we we see what it was like for these people to be in this relationship and to have a really strong established relationship and like to be somewhat accepted in their community like she's in school, they do all these things. Blah, blah. Like it's it seems really banal and normal and yet under the surface of that is this terrible violence and this horrific like this this deep anger and and the and the capacity for this this horrific violence and so i rewrote that scene a lot like over and over and over and over and over again um or not from the top but i edited it and then added bits and took things away and blah blah um and it wasn't until i watched like the 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 uh the section had always sort of had the same you know, structure. It mm-hmm. just like wasn't popping off the page. Like it was, it could never get out of its own way. Which okay. is, I think, the thing that the thing that um, I would say about all openings is is just sort of let the story just start. Just let it start. You know, stop worrying about like establishing whatever. Like just let it get out of its own way. And you'll, you know, whatever needs to be there will probably wind up in there. Um, if you look at a lot of, if you read a lot of opening lines or you read a lot of openings in in fiction, they don't like tell you a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Like they don't exposit it. The, they don't exposit at the beginning because nothing kills a story faster than exposition. I hate exposition. I'll do anything not to tell you shit. I will literally. I will like, I don't care if you don't get it or if it doesn't leap off the pit. Like, I literally do not care and, and stuff. So <laughs> I will do anything to avoid expositing information. Um, what,
0: what are you working towards then? You know, we got, we got yeah. to avoid the exposition. That makes good sense. I get that. Yeah, what yeah. are you working towards for those opening bits?
2: Really create something that a, that a reader wants to join in with you. Create a create a character and a world, or a situ, or even not even a world, but like a situation, a problem, right? The progress of a story is a person solving a problem. You know, the seven the seven beat story is like a person in a place with a problem that they solve, or that okay. they try to solve, and they try fail, try succeed. Right. Um, so it's sort of you know it. We're in a situation. There's a problem. I have to fix it, or I'm involved in fixing it, or someone comes. To, someone comes to me and asks me something, which is the opening of every every noir story. Is like you know, like she came to my office and you know had legs for days and scams um, Gams, gams, it is, yes. gams, for days. And so, uh, so it's a it's about that. And if you can create a situation where you're like really invested in. In whether or not somebody wants to help you, or whether or not this person can solve this problem, um, or can solve a mystery, or can or can or can get something done, can accomplish something, and in, in a way that also probably helps them accomplish something personally, then that's what I'm usually going for. So, and I also just like want to give people an opportunity to sort of join in with that character and, and sure.
0: See and so so, so demonstrating some some aspect of agency. For yeah. or your oh, eventual yeah. protag yeah. is, yeah. is you, a good yeah. thing.
2: Yeah. You you cannot like open a story, any story of any size, wh- unless this is your, your explicit point by having a character complain about how powerless they are or like how little <laughs> they can get done. And I'm not talking about like systemic oppression or something like that. I'm talking about like, you know, oh, I was going to do this, but then the. You know, the traffic light changed and the only place that I've ever, ever, ever seen that work is the opening of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, where Arthur (laughs) is talking about how awful things are for him. And and, but then there's a reason for that. Right. (laughs) And things so yeah. it, it, it even it still plays into the story
0: and and it's uh, enough it, it's short enough and brief enough that when we get on to the you know destruction of the earth that you know yeah. it's there's enough of a road crash uh, roadside crash I'm gonna slow down and watch the mayhem of this guy's life and then by then you're hooked and the world is destroyed yeah, no, and we're in it
2: yeah it's a it's at least then it's about his voice right it's about you know right. his it's, a sta- it's there to establish a voice and then by the end of it he has a lot more agency than he ever did yes um uh, and is a lot stronger in his, in himself than he ever was. So, um, I don't know. No, would- that
0: makes perfect sense. I get it. And honestly, I'm, I'm thinking this, this, this particular question needs to be like, uh, uh, put onto the, the round table, uh, dinner party theme. That's right. Yeah, friends. We're, like- we're changing round table dialogues to round table dinner parties and we're going to have food and drink, but, yeah. but we could explore this for hours.
2: Yeah. How do you do, how do you do the opening? Yeah. Uh, is is like one of the hardest challenges. I bought my husband a a mug at the L.A. Public Library. Uh, that's like the opening lines of really really great novels, <laughs> and it's like that's all that's on there. And it's still like in like it's a coffee mug, and it's really intimidating. <laughs>
0: it's intimidating. Plus, you know, the, it's also a resource.
2: Being <laughs> coffee mug where you read these great, amazing lines and you're like, how could I not read the rest of the book?
0: Exactly. Um, Exactly. That's what we all aspire to. Well, as as much as we could continue discussing this for hours, the the, the clock has actually replicated itself and then consumed the replicated version of itself and is looking at me with malice (laughs) and and hunger in its eyes. (laughs) So I can only assume that means we're out of time or the singularity has occurred. Uh, Either way, uh, we need to wrap this up. Madeline Ashby, thank you so much. This has been... uh, uh, (laughs) A revelationary experience as I knew it would be. Thank you Aww. so much for making the time. Thank you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, Lauren, obviously you were broken for the first part he of is. that. Uh, and I uh-huh. <laughs> just, just purely by virtue of experience was able to to endure the breakage and, and soldier on. What are you taking away from this episode that you're going to like cherish and hold on to in your writer's toolbox?
1: You know, um, actually this last bit about, about openings and letting it be the story and the character having something that they need to accomplish. Um, openings are really hard for me. So I think that, that actually has, has helped a little bit in my, um, (laughs) in my ideas of, of how to open a story and, uh, so I think I think that's going to be the thing that I take away.
0: Excellent. And I'm, I'm sure many of our listeners are echoing that sentiment. I certainly was clearly diving into that deeply and ready to unpack more uh, <laughs>
2: awesome.
0: f- for myself. That quote of of if you can't see yourself in the mirror, you become monstrous. And uh, that's
2: Juno Diaz. That's not me. But, uh, yes,
0: exactly. Exactly. Quoting Juno Diaz. Uh, uh, but that concept, that idea, and and its its relevance in the context of everything that we're seeing in genre fiction, I, I don't know what I'm going to do with that, but just the fact that it's still resonating in my brain and in my heart moving forward means something is going to be relevant and germane there. That, that was just a profound... Uh, concept and so and like so many profound concepts obvious when you see it but until right. it's illustrated uh, uh it, you, you can't do anything with it until you drag it into the consciousness and give it an opportunity give you an opportunity to do something with it it's it's just sitting in the background waiting right. so friends here's how this thing is going to roll out that was a fabulous conversation and perhaps the longest 20 minutes you've ever endured, (laughs) and that's okay, because it was awesome, Uh, but what we're going to do next is we're going to chill for about a week, so are you, Uh, we're going to bring back Madeline, we're going to bring back Lauren, and then we're going to bring back a fabulous guest writer, and they are going to set the table for a story brainstorming feast that I can, I'm looking into the future, yes, holy crap, it's thermonuclear, Uh, uh, you've got to come back and make that scene, Uh, but it's seven days, and I know that's a long damn time and I, we just can't do this any quicker. Lauren, help us out. What 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 can our listeners do between now and 7 days from now to to make that time be full of productivity and just just whiz by?
1: Sidestep the singularity and write.
0: <laughs> yes indeed. Or embrace the singularity because you are the singularity. Hell, your story could be the singularity. You never know what's going to change the world, and we'll never know until you write it and you put it out in the world. That's your, that's your mandate for the next seven days. Excellent. And I will tell you, friends, as I always do, you find what you're looking for. So look for the wow. Look for the, oh, hell yes. Look for the, I had no idea that was there. And I promise you, friends, if you look for that stuff, you will find it. We will see you in just seven days. Until then, you guys stay cool, stay frothy, and stay awesome. And we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. This episode of the Roundtable podcast is copyright 2015 by Wonder Thing Studios and is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, non-commercial, share-alike license. That means please don't sell it but you can share it to your heart's content. You can even use portions of it in your own productions, as long as you release those productions under the same licensing terms and reference us as the source. Theme music for the Roundtable podcast was performed by the Hepcats of Brotown: Gary Gold, David LaBroyere, Billy Nobel, and Matt O'Donnell. If you would like to be a guest writer or guest host, join in on the conversation or just learn more about us visit our website at www.roundtablepodcast.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundtablepodcast and on Twitter at writerspodcast. And you can always email us at thetable at roundtablepodcast.com. Thanks for listening.